I guess if if I wanted someone to tell me something when I was in year 12, it would be that just stick to that. You know, don't feel like that's not real world enough because I had been told that many times by many professionals. Um, even people in my family <laughs> told me that that's not real world though. You know, you can do that in academic discussions, in classrooms, but can you do that in the workforce? So I, I wish that someone told me that, you know, you, can, you don't have to worry about that loud noise. They, they might be right, but they may not know the potential that you have to actually bring that nexus together. And I think the, the concept of real world is a bit flawed and... We, we had a chat last week about your approach to high school and I found that really interesting and it was quite different to the approach that I had, to be honest with you. Um, and so I wanted to start there. Um, so one of the interesting things you mentioned was that you always had like a curious and inquisitive mind. Um, so and you talked about how you didn't sort of take things on face value and you were sort of always asking questions to, to that extent. So for those that don't know you personally, can you take us through like how you approached those later years in high school? Um, and what were, what were the sort of things that were interested, um, you were interested in? Okay, um, so I'll kind of date back to like maybe year eight, year nine, which is yeah. when I really remember taking subjects like history and geography, um, which were essentially like the humanities subject at the time before senior years. Um, I remember like being really interested in learning about, I guess, just, you know, history, different, um, I guess we also learned about like political structures as well in history, mm -hmm. um, learning about geography, which was not just about studying maps, it was also about studying, you know, different local regions, um, and understanding like state development, and there was, it was just a lot of new information, and at the time it was definitely daunting, but something that I feel like I didn't get from the textbooks, um, leading up to around year eight and year nine. Um, and even when we would learn those things in class, I wasn't getting it just from the textbook. I was, we were watching videos in class and, you know, I'd often have discussions with other people in my classroom and it all, it would always lead to larger questions beyond what we would learn. So for example, I remember um, in geography, we were learning about um, like a local, like an LGA and we had to study waste management. Um, and food security. And that was really interesting because in geography, I would think we're just going to study the world map. Um, but we were learning about, you know, the, I guess the politics of geography, a politics of a region. And in that class, I, we had to produce a report and we had to kind of do a little bit of research in our own area and look at our waste management strategies and all of that. But when we would do that, it would lead to broader questions about, well, why do we, why do some regions have poorer waste management, waste management strategies than others? Um, why is food insecurity a larger problem in certain areas than others? Um, and just larger questions that I guess made me more interested in the subject itself. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, definitely really bred that curiosity, I think from a very young age. Mm -hmm possibly very annoying for a lot of my classmates who would have to listen to me like raise questions. But um, I guess I really started to think about the world around me um, and position myself in the world around me from a young age. Yeah. And I think it had a lot to do with reading as well. Yeah. So yeah. specifically, you mentioned a few interesting things there, particularly about how you were interested in the in the bigger picture of, of things. Yeah. 
So for those that don't know, like what were the specific sort of subjects that you took um, that really gave you that exposure to those real world, like socio-political issues that you just mentioned? Yeah. Would you say like senior year or like before senior um, year? I mean, whatever, whatever okay. sort of helped for okay. me from that perspective, yeah. Awesome. Okay. So like I said, like I, I, these subjects were mandatory for everybody in high school, at least here in Sydney. Um, and so I was already raising questions, but I have to say that the more definitive moment for me was two things. It was public taking up public speaking um, and debating at school um, and then taking HSC Aboriginal studies. So taking up debating and public speaking, I have been doing, I had been doing that since around year seven and actually really in primary school. And then when I came to high school, I've been doing it since year seven. I guess I was just very um, loud mouthed and outspoken, um, but I was also like introverted too. Like it, I was an interesting mix, but public speaking always gave me an opportunity to talk about things I felt like I couldn't really talk about in the classroom. Um, maybe it would be because I was intimidated by other students or sometimes I even felt like teachers really didn't give me the platform. Um, and at the time I was pretty young and especially like growing up, there can be a lot of like in high school, there can be a lot of tension between boys and girls. Sometimes as girls in high school growing up, you don't really feel like you can say things and voice things because the boys next to you will laugh at you. Like there are a lot of those tensions, I guess, in high school for a lot of people. So I think that taking up public speaking, I felt like I had my own platform to and my own designated time and space for everyone to just listen to me and what I had to say. Um, and I think I really, really enjoyed that. It was really empowering. Um, debating was a bit more intense for me. It was obviously mm. com competitive um, and you have to work with a team and like you have to come up with like oppositional points and it was very fast paced. So a little bit more confronting, but I think it prepared me to think about what the person on the other side of the room was thinking about before them and beat them to it. And I think it prepared me with the critical thinking skills as well. Um, yeah. So I think that really helped. Yeah. And then Aboriginal studies really, I think, on a more um, on a more like thinking about issues and thinking about politics. I think that's really when it started specifically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear you talk about some of the sort of extracurricular opportunities that you had, um, which really helped you sort of find your voice in a way. And yeah. I think like knowing a bit about, you know, where you've gone since then, it's really clear that you've carried those lessons, you know, right throughout your university, like high school and, um, you know, right throughout the early stages of your, your profession as well, um, which we're going to get into uh, in a lot more detail. Um, so, you know, in light of your passion for law reform policy research, like, can you, can you tell us about, you know, how you were able to like express that in high school? Like, like what I mean by that is, you know, what was your understanding of that sort of career path in high school? Was there a lot of um, like misinformation that you were exposed to? Was there not enough information? What was your exposure to in, in that context? Okay, so I think definitely, you know, we start thinking about what do we pursue, you know, when we leave high school, when we yeah. enter year 10, 11, it's really the hot topic. Um, and I think a lot of people like Indian people might like myself maybe can resonate with this. You do feel pressure to pursue certain degrees um, in your family, in your community. I definitely felt that pressure, but at the same time, I think just me being me in my, the nature of just me, I guess, my parents kind of felt like there's only so much we can tell her, you know, I was a bit of a, I was that type of child. So uh, in terms of like finding out what really worked for me, 
I did feel like law would be the option for me. And I think that's because that's what everyone talks about, right? When you care about an issue, when you're good at writing and reading and you can write an essay um, and yeah, like people just say, oh, do law. It's just like that standard takeaway. Yeah. Pathway, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But like I said, I loved asking questions. And so when Mm. I took up legal studies um, and particularly like society and culture and modern history, um, when I started to ask certain questions, I realized that, and I obviously do a little bit of research about what law is as a degree, I realized that law could really only offer me certain amount of what I was already asking for. So what I was asking for was why certain things happen the way that they do. I was really talking about power and power imbalances and trying to ask questions about like why things are the way that they are in society. And I felt like law was, could give me a to an extent, you know, good answers to those questions. But I started to research more about politics and international relations and that discipline and what that offers and possibly how it's very research oriented. And I was really interested in research as well. So I guess that curiosity led me in an authentic way to be more open to certain options beyond what people were telling me, you know, and what my family were telling me. And maybe even what I felt internally. I definitely felt internal pressure to do law and I did eventually get into law but yeah it was always like no I think what's really meant for me is to take this pathway instead and I'm really grateful for it because studying politics and international relations has given me a a lot more of a systematic overview of a lot of different issues which are inherently legal as well they're very interconnected but I think I got more of an expansive outlook than I would have if I did law. Yeah. yeah. And I think like a lot of people listening to this as well will resonate with that sort of internal and external conflict you had over yeah. choosing, you know, what pathway you're going to pursue after high school. And I think like you sort of touched on it there that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure on people at such a young age to make those decisions. So Find it's it great. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's very refreshing to hear you, you know, be honest and, you know, open about that um, because I don't think it's, I don't think it's something that's, you know, as talked about, you know, as it should be. And you mentioned there that, you know, on the back of your, your high school experience at Chobuk Tech, which we both graduated from, yeah. you yeah. were able to go to the University of Sydney and you studied, a, it's a double degree, right? Bachelor of Arts and Advanced Studies, or is it just one? Actually, I don't really <laughs> know the answer to that question, yeah. to be honest. I must say that there was very limited options for my degree. So I knew that Sydney Uni, um, ANU, and and I think there's another, uh, UNSW were great institutions for my field um, Mm. in in the sense that they were competitive and I would be able to gain as much as I could. Um, But, you you know, UNSW, the trimester problem, I didn't want to meddle with that. And then ANU, I didn't really want to move to Canberra. I wasn't ready. So I was like, okay, use it as the option. So with my degree, it is in arts and advanced studies, but the advanced studies is stream. So the politics and international relations is a degree stream where you take certain units that are mandatory of the for the pool of applicants, like the pool of students in that during that degree. And you do the degree with those people throughout the four years. Right. And then the fourth year is a competitive honors degree, like a stream. So it's, it's a bit complicated and I think the university markets it in a little bit of a interesting way. I, I don't want to say misleading, but I kind of feel like you don't really get the same in, the information that you think you know when you, you know, when you're in that last year, like in year 12 and you're trying to apply on like, you know, mm. what's the, yeah, when you're trying to select yeah. a degree. Yeah. I mean, 
it's funny i was actually just studying this like half an hour ago about like asymmetry of information where like one party has has all the information so in this circumstance it would be the university right and then you yeah. have like an uninformed party which is um like the high schools high school students so it's, yeah. it's it, and one of the ways to overcome that information asymmetry is like for you know universities to to signal to students to say hey you know to be open and transparent about you know what they offer yeah. right and mm. it's so in your experience there there wasn't that sort of level of transparency that you were looking for not necessarily right? yeah and because the degree um stream that I'm doing it was relatively new so there right. wasn't a lot of resources about it either and honestly like I was I think a lot of us would be naive but there is that pressure in year 12 to like really pick your degree because if when you get your ATAR you're going to get the offers in order of what you put and so like there is crazy pressure you know to really figure yeah. it out to kind of just roll with it if you you know what I mean like you may not even want the degree that you put a number one but you get it and that's it like mm. It is, it can be daunting, but you always have the opportunity to change and transfer degrees. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that I was fully misled because I knew that if I wasn't happy, I would transfer, but I was actually really happy with my degree stream um, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and there, there were certain things that I guess I had to really do on my own and, you know, and, and it's the university is very independent. So you do have to kind of guide yourself. Um, so that's what I had to do for my fourth year that I'm going into now. Um, but I feel like it was kind of worth it. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And yeah, like, <laughs> hindsight, yeah. We, we can always look back and think about, you know, what different decisions we could have made, you know, how could we have improved our circumstances? But like, I don't know, it, you get down a rabbit hole um, to an extent there. But I mean, you mentioned there that like, um, uh, like studying that particular degree, there was like, um, a level of like there was a lack of transparency essentially okay. and like you know a lot of late high school and early university students you know are going to listen to this you know some of whom are interested in like policy and uh, yeah. like law reform so like if you were to sort of give those people a particular message um you know um uh, graduating high school um you know what would what would that sort of message be okay um so I think what I would say is if you're interested in studying politics, international relations, even if you're interested in studying law as well, there are so many degree options available from so many institutions. So what I would recommend is that booklet that you get at like open day, no, not open day. It's that like uni studio, like um, you go on like a field trip or something. It's like careers it's like, day or something? Careers day, careers yeah. day, that's, that's it. <laughs> You get that booklet and it tells you all the degrees that are being offered for at different unis and what their ATAR cutoffs are. I recommend going through that and highlighting the degrees that interest you and then making a list and then to make a pros and cons list. Um, and then in that pros and cons list to think about certain aspects like, for example, travel, um, the degree structure, um, for example, at UNSW, there's this fantastic degree that's originally from Columbia University, the politics, economics, and philosophy. I wanted to do that, but I was worried about the economics because I didn't take maths after year 10. So I was like, am I going to be disadvantaged? So that pros and cons list would enable, enable you to deconstruct and break that down. Um, then to think about like the degree that I'm doing right now, if I put that on a list, I would be able to think about, well, do I really want to pursue honors? So would this degree be suited for me? 
Um, but with advanced studies, you know, you don't have to do honours only in your fourth year. You can do an advanced um, coursework, which is an industry project. So if you wanted to get more real life skills and not necessarily go through research, not that that's not real life skills, but if you didn't want to write a, you know, 18,000 word thesis, then you've got that option. So that having a pros and cons list, I think will help visualize a lot of different aspects and make you make your decision a lot easier. And mm. to also think about hex debt as well, um, because that's important. Um, I didn't think about that at all. Yeah, neither did I. And I, and I think if we're Commonwealth supported students, we are privileged enough to not have to worry about it. But I think it's good to think about it, especially, you know, with COVID and everything going on and a lot of the job uncertainty. So it's, it's good to think about the potential, like what your debt could look like. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you're interested in law, you know, there's so many double degrees out there. So then doing a pros and cons list would make you think like, is doing a double degree, like a law degree, undergrad better than doing a JD which is a postgrad law degree you know so like weighing it out and to the best that you can not that you're going to have it all figured out but I guess it's somewhere to start exactly yeah. and I think you know regardless of whether students are interested in policy or law reform those are you know applicable to a whole a whole yeah. host of degrees and um, you know, practice areas for example um so Himanshi like we've touched on your university degree yeah. and you know like the substance of it what it was about um can you tell us about like some of the like some of the differences you experienced between like high school and university? Like you mentioned that earlier, you said um, that it's less there's less guidance and it's less hands on, right? Um, did you did, was that a struggle like at all for you? Did you find it easy? Did you like the independence of you know having your own schedule, not being told to do your homework a thousand times a day? Like what what was that sort of transition for you? Mm, that's a great question. Um, okay. So I feel like in high school, I was a pretty independent student. Right. Um, and as much as we were spoon fed in high school and as much as I benefited from that, I think I, I wasn't independent student enough to be able to handle university to a certain degree. And the reason why I say certain degree is because with university, it's not just like being able to do things alone and on your own that is required, but sometimes there can be an ample amount of resources all at your all in your face and you have to kind of figure it out and I'm not just talking about like on the university website I'm talking about campus as well like getting help from certain tutors and lecturers like that your lecturer will change every week and like your coordinator could be great but it could also not be so great so who do you go to and like also sometimes the other students in your classes you know you may not develop close relationships with them sometimes you get lucky sometimes you don't so then you have to make a group chat you know and find all the people in your unit and try to discuss and you, you really kind of have to be your own you know trooper I guess um, so I think it, it was okay for me but then I also did struggle with it especially with COVID um, yeah and not on campus and and yeah, it was just a lot. And I and I kind of really empathize with students that are, you know, going into university post-COVID, if we can even call it that. Um, because yeah, it, it's going to be even more difficult. And it's a very different terrain that they're entering that maybe I that that I didn't have to enter because I started uni in 2019. Exactly. So yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah, COVID does like have its fair share of challenges, particularly uh, for those who starting their university degree and it's it's pretty much changed their whole um, university yeah. experience and I was thinking the other day about even like if you go back to school 
like people will go into kindergarten now like that's all they know they're, they're not like that's all yeah. they know virtual learning right so um yeah. i think that's it's it's you know a whole range of students whether you're in university or high school primary school um you know can definitely resonate with that sentiment there um so Himachi, um during your university degree uh, you're currently in your third year out of four um, you've been able to sort of supplement like your um, your learning in that degree with like a whole range of different sort of professional opportunities in the policy and law reform field. Um, one of those, to be specific, uh, was at Justice Action as a policy intern. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, you worked you worked in the debts and custody team and the human rights team. So for those that aren't familiar with Justice Action um, at all, what does give us an idea of what Justice Action does and how you contributed uh, in your role? Sure. Um, so to be more chronological, when I left high school um, and I started university, I was interested in gaining more you know, experience beyond just studying, I guess, academia. Mm. I had been involved like um in the community. So I, I did do policy research and community outreach, you know, like end of year 12 um, and towards year 12. And I also did a few other things. So I feel like I did have my foot in the door a little bit um, in terms of volunteering and a little bit of work experience. But with Justice Action, it was definitely um, a whole new door that I had my foot in. Um, and it was a great learning experience. So Justice Action is a not-for-profit independent um, grassroots organization that works towards policy and law reform, um, particularly in relation to prison and mental health reform. Um, it's run by Brett. Um, he's a fantastic man. And he um, is actually, you know, he does this in his own time and he mentors all the interns that come in because it's fully volunteer, like it's fully student led, fully like volunteer led. So there's a lot of like, you know, unpaid work that is involved of course um right. so he spends a lot of time mentoring us because he knows that while it is unpaid we do want to make it you know an impact in the community and we also want to gain those skills so we can take that with us wherever we go in the future especially in the field itself so it was definitely a reciprocal relationship that I felt like I built and the people around me built um, and we worked on lots of different things I was in the deaths in custody team and the human rights team so with deaths in custody we were looking at um, looking at law reform particularly in relation to you know the disproportionately you know, high incarceration rates of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, looking at the systemic causes um, and working with, you know, um, coroners, yeah, coroners yeah. Um, and other, you know, court professionals and other legal professionals to bring about certain, um, you know, I guess, law reform submissions. So we would be writing reports and submissions and proposing different alternatives to certain things. Um, and there was honestly so much that was involved um, in the human rights team. It was a lot more expansive, I feel. Um, with human rights, we were looking specifically into prison, right? Like um, inmate rights and the rights that prisoners have. Um, so we looked at, you know, the formation of a pr um, prison union um, and right. what that could mean. So the, the legal character of a, of, a, of a prisoner being able to work, what does that mean? Um, and can they actually gain certain, you know, rights from joining a union? And why may that be important for them? Um, and just there's just so much to it. And yeah. It was a great experience. 
yeah, yeah it sounds like it sounds like a like I, I wasn't too familiar with justice action um previously but it sounds like it's a really good opportunity for students and you mentioned yeah, there that it's yeah, yeah you mentioned that it's student-led right so like yes. would you encourage like other students who are interested in policy and social impact to you know potentially look at justice action Absolutely. And I think especially those that want to be more, who, who want to make their approach to their work and their research and whatever, more grassroots. And I think mm. that when, when you are in a grassroots space, you learn so much more. Um, and I think you become very immersed, you know, and emotional about the work that you do. And I think that's a, that's a great thing to have because it gives you purpose and meaning in everything that you do. And I feel like I had that to begin with, but it definitely you know, expanded and strengthened when I entered Justice Action. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And it's opportunities like that. Like, like I, people, like people criticize unpaid opportunities a lot for students. Yeah. And I, and I understand that completely. Yeah. yeah. I, I do get it. I do get it. But at the same time, you know, but for that unpaid opportunity, there'd be a whole bunch of students who can't get their foot in the door as you, as you mentioned earlier. Right. So it's exactly. I I do get the the arguments against, but I, I I strongly resonate with you know some of the opportunities. Like I've taken unpaid uh, opportunities as well, and you sort of build off that, right? The the intention is not to stay there for like two years or three years, right? Um, exactly. You know, you're, you're using it as yeah. a stepping stone. Exactly, and I only interned there once a week, so it was really friendly with my schedule. Um, and honestly, I wouldn't even feel like it was unpaid. Um, when I would go into the office, I would have a blast with everyone around me. I made so many great friends. I made so many law student friends who would just rant about their degrees and how how like how much they're suffering, and then just completely like project that into their work. And it was great because it was the right energy, the right passion. And I think we all mentored each other, and it was a safe space. And that's why I think internships are so important, especially within your community, because you get to know and build networks. And that's really important, yeah, to build and grow. Yeah, 100%. And, um, you know, there's a lot of students out there who, you know, are trying to get their foot in the door. And, you know, in the context of this conversation, they're looking to get into policy and uh, law reform. Like, so just sort of taking a step back and looking at the broader picture of some of the intern and um, professional opportunities you've had, whether they've been unpaid or paid, like for someone who's trying to get their foot in the door, like, is it, what can you, what, what can you tell them about that process? Is it a really competitive um, mm. like environment? Is it tough to land that first one? What sort of yeah. like messages would you sort of give in that context? That's a, honestly a great question. And if I was watching this video, like a few years ago, it would have helped me so much because I went through the same thing, questioning that exact same thing. Um, so honestly, I, I could go on forever about this, but when I really left high school, even with the volunteer experience that I had, I found it difficult to even get a, like a barista job, right? And it was just really daunting because I had a tape certificate in coffee making um, and I was the coffee maker for, for, for Cherry Brook. And I was like, I'm going to get any coffee job, but I didn't. And I was like, this is not even in my field. Like, come on. Um, and it was annoying, but I think it pushed me to be more resilient um, and it pushed me to open up my avenues. So that's kind of what led me to Foresight Analytics because it really wasn't my field but it was an opportunity that would get me get my foot into the door and doing an, an interning with justice action came much later than, you know, it came in more in my third year right now. Mm -hmm. um, but I think 
any opportunity you take, it's always one step further to something else. And I have heard this quote, or oh, someone on TikTok has maybe shared it. You know, they want us to, they want us to get the job, and then they want us to have all this experience, but they won't give us that experience. That's and so I really agree with that. So it can be tough for a lot of students out there, but even if it's unpaid, that opportunity is a lot more valuable than you think. Um, but of course, I speak from a very privileged position because obviously I live with my parents and I didn't have to worry about paying rent, you know, every month. So you have to really weigh it out. But I think for the most part, any opportunity you get should take it because it's always going to accumulate to something else. And 100%. that's going to, yeah, yeah. And yeah, looking at looking at some of the opportunities you've had, you can definitely see the progression um, throughout your your early, very early, um, you know, professional career, right? And, yeah. you know, one of the ways, you know, that you've demonstrated that progression is at Foresight Analytics. Yeah. Um, you've had, you know, multiple roles, you know, throughout that organization. Um, I believe you initially started as an administrative officer and you're now working as a, like a social impact research associate. Um, yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but from my, from our conversation, sorry, from our conversation last week, you were mentioning how um, Forza Analytics is quite a small, like specialized sort of firm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell us about, you know, Forza Analytics, uh, how you've progressed through that company and what, what are the sort of things you do now? Okay. So like I said, when I was right out of high school, I did struggle to kind of land any opportunity, um, but I did come across Foresight, some of which was through mutual networks. So I think that's what kind of, I think, helped me. And for some people, I know they can be disadvantaged by this because, you know, not everyone knows everyone that knows, you know, a job opportunity or like, you know, some type of internship opportunity. But so it was through a mutual network, but at the same time, I think, just going in for that interview and going in for that face-to-face -face interaction, I was able to, I guess, persuade myself into the role. Um, at the time, I, I think whoever was recruiting me could tell that I was a lot more beyond just admin work, um, but they saw that I didn't have a lot of the work skills, I guess, that because I was so young and I was just mm -hmm. out of high school. So the reason why I have those few roles is because that was kind of my building blocks that I was, I guess, building, you know, at Foresight. And I got that mentorship. And I think I've learned so much about a workplace just through that opportunity. Um, and I guess staying there and continuing to hone to my own interests, like social impact, like, you know, politics and national relations, even if, even though the field was definitely very divergent from what I'm doing, there was a space for me to kind of tap into um, where I could contribute my worldviews, my work and my field to that field. Um, and I guess I, because I stayed to that interest, I kept to my, kept to those interests, I eventually came to that opportunity. And so if I were to say anything to anyone, it would be that even if you're doing a role at the moment, that's not really what you want to do. Keep to your interests because you will find a way, hopefully, to kind of capitalize on that in, in, in another opportunity. And it may not be with the same company or the same organization. It could be somewhere else. But I definitely feel like it can lead you to where you want to kind of something more closer to what you want to do if you stay true to your interests and not feel like, you know, oh, what's the point anymore because you're not in that role in that immediate moment. And I think yeah. that resilience really helped me. Yeah. hundred percent. I think that's, that's great advice. And 
you mentioned a couple of times, it's like holding on to like your, the, the things you're passionate and interested about and having a, and try and try. Yeah. You were saying? Oh, sorry. No, you keep going. I was just yeah. saying, adding. I was going to say like, um, yeah, you, you were talking about it. You've brought it up a few times about having sort of a sense of purpose and drive and yeah. And, you know, sometimes you're not going to have an opportunity that fits exactly with, you know, your, your, your preference, but um, it, it's an investment at the end of the day, you're investing in your own future. Right. Um, and you're, you're building it to, to put it, you're, you're putting those building blocks in place to put it in your own words. Like one thing you also mentioned there, um, which I wanted to touch on, um, you mentioned how like the skills and experiences you had at Forza Analytics was totally different to um, the skills and expertise of your colleagues. So I, I imagine that it's quite like a multidisciplinary um, sort yeah. of team. Like, was that a bit confronting at the at the beginning where you're like, damn, these guys know all about finance, economics, and I'm here like with this perspective. Was that confronting? Did that perspective change along the way, the longer you've been at uh, Forza Analytics? Okay, great question, jam-packed. So yeah. um, at Foresight, definitely, you know, investment analytics. So not my field at all. Um, and it was daunting. But like I said, because I kept true to my interests, I was always bringing up, you know, bringing up something in my field in a work meeting or in a brainstorming meeting or a webinar or whatever. So, for example, um, you know, with what happened with COVID, you know, and how it affected the international market um, and the market trends were changing economics. Essentially, there were so many economic changes that were brought about by COVID. In those conversations at my workplace, I was talking about trade. I was talking about, you know, the political economy, which is a whole other discipline in itself. And that's something that I study very extensively is political economy. How is, you know, politics intertwined with economic change and economic functions? And I think I was able to kind of bring that interdisciplinarity, if that's how you pronounce it, in the workspace. And that really helped me challenge myself um, because, I felt like I was trying really hard to bring in something from my background into the field because I was like, how else am I going to fit in? But it definitely allowed me to think about, you know, practical real world things because I had to bring my essentially arts degree, right, into a non-arts field and apply it. And a lot of people feel like arts degrees can be very stagnant, useless, right? Don't believe that, but a lot of people believe it. Um, and I felt like I was doing something useful with it because I was applying critical perspectives to a discipline that I would say, or a fuel that I would say is perhaps not very, you know, um, critical and doesn't have a lot of revisionism and all of that. Um, it can be very prescriptive finance. So um, that was really exciting and challenging. Um, and I think it helped build my own interdisciplinarity, which I think is very important in the world that we live in. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like you've built a lot of like confidence and self-esteem off the back of that, right? Um, when yeah. you feel valued, when you feel like you're bringing something to the table um, in a unique way, it, it sounds like, you know, you've really um, grown into that role and um, you're more assured um, now than what you may have been previously. And you mentioned there that like um, you're working on matters which you're typically not exposed to. Um, whether it be like investments or finance, um, economics, things of that nature. Um, and sort of one of the ways that you sort of challenged yourself was co-authoring the article on gender lens investing, um, which is how I initially 
was exposed to some of the work you've been doing and how we initially connected. Um, so, like as I mentioned at the top of the of the interview, the article is basically about like how can we implement gender lens investing strategies in the real in the real world, right? How can we do it in a practical um, and pragmatic uh, way? And the the gist, like the sort of understanding that I had was that. Um, like previously, it was very theoretical and very abstract. Um, and this article was about putting it to paper and really painting a picture of what it could look like in the real world. Um, I could be totally off with that. Um, so I'll leave that to you. But um, pretty close, like, pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah. <laughs> so for, for, firstly, for those of us who don't know anything about gender lens investing, like just what is it about? Like what, is, what are the objectives and aims of a GLI? Awesome. Great question. So when I got into doing social impact research um, in the investment space, what that really pertains to is ESG. And ESG is considered environmental social governance. And it's a framework as well as a network of resources that are provided to analysts, that are provided to people within the field to start thinking about how they can be more responsible environmentally, socially, and also in terms of, you know, ethics and governance and you know, all of that um, through their decision-making, through their investment decision-making particularly. And when that, when I came across ESG, I was like, wow, that's like a great kind of nexus, right? Between what I'm studying a little bit and the financial world. Um, and I did have a little bit of disillusionment with it because I was like, this is, this sometimes can be exploited by certain, you know, investment stakeholders just to yield financial return. Is this actually going to be something tangible for the community that we live in? How do we assess impact, you know, especially in a field where there are, where there are no like pre-existing methodologies to assess impact? Um, because that's more so from the arts and social sciences, right? Um, and so with ESG, I, I really had to dive in, you know, barefoot I'm using feet analogies but anyway I really had to dive in um, and I felt like it was a, a strong challenge but it really spoke to me because I felt like there was something meaningful that I could contribute and with gender lens investing that falls in with this, the s of the ESG and what it's really about is similar to what you said but a little bit different as well what it's really about is how can we bring in perspectives from, you know, um, gender studies, perspectives from arts and social sciences about achieving gender equality, about what gender equality means for women across the world and implement that in, you know, in responsible investment frameworks. So investors that are considered to be impact investors who want to create social impact as well as financial return, how can they use perspectives from these fields to make a more informed and more evidence-based decision, right? About making impact. And there can be a lot of flaws. Um, and like I said, it can be exploited. So for me, I felt like what I was doing was bringing in that critical perspective, both in terms of theory, because I think there is a lot of lag in the theory. There's a lot that needs to be you know, evolving and changing and updated. Um, especially when we're talking about intersectional gender equality. I, I don't think at the moment the investment space um, is thinking about intersectional gender politics and being intersectional about their decision-making when it comes to gender equality, which I think is a, a problem and we need to really work on that. Um, but at the same time, you know, being able to see how gender lens investing can build real world 
tangible outcomes, you know? So there was a huge possibility to it that was really astounding to me. So yeah, with gender lens investing, it's really about using that theory, that knowledge to bring gender equality through certain outcomes and targets. Um, and the main kind of mechanism is allocating capital to women-led businesses, to women-led um, solution-based you know, organizations that are really targeting gender equality. So it's not necessarily getting men in power to make decisions about women. What it is about is getting people with an investment space with power to allocate capital to women-led organizations, to strong women-led you know, entities um, to support their endeavors towards gender equality and SDG five, which is the main target that we really talk about, which is gender equality. So the article was really about bringing in the critical theory um, and talking about ways in which investors can steer away from making, I guess, greenwashing, right? Social washing decisions um, where it's like not really impact, but more about return. Um, and yeah, it was all about that. Yeah. It's yeah. cool to, to hear your insights and sort of perspectives on GLI. And um, by the sounds of it, you weren't familiar with it prior to undertaking yeah. that project. No. And, you know, it, you've, you've been able to, you know, apply those critical thinking skills, which you're, you're really passionate about and really interested in applying in yeah. the future as well. Um, so Himanshi, I'm very conscious of the time. It pretty yeah. much that's flew by. We're pretty much at the end. Um, but just in closing, I just wanted to, to, to ask a more general question. Like there have been a few themes throughout this interview, um, you know, particularly, um, you know, something that comes to mind that's, that's applied to each stage of your sort of career is, you know, being curious and being inquisitive, um, asking why, which you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, um, you know, finding a sense of purpose, which you mentioned towards the middle, um, and to, to, to always have like a, like a, um, to always challenge yourself um, because a lot of the situations from, from listening to what you've said, a lot of the situations you've been in, um, you didn't necessarily have the right skills or qualifications or expertise. You didn't have five years experience in, in um, policy or exactly. whatever the case like, may be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of key themes, which, as I said, people who, you know, might not even be totally interested in policy or social impact, you know, they can, you know, benefit from, from listening to. So in closing, Hamanchi, um, I just wanted to ask, was there any sort of final message or, or tip or piece of advice you wanted to leave, potentially like a late high school or early university student out there, um, potentially your, your, your previous self, if you want to think of it that way, um, what, what would that piece of um, advice be? Um, okay, I'll think about that one. Yeah, yeah go so for it. Um, I think, you know, when I was talking about curiosity and inquisitiveness, mm. that really came from a place of like having strong feelings about the world, but at the same time, not knowing if those strong feelings were just, you know, teenage phase or like real, real feelings that I had and, and real convictions that I had. Um, and I think I developed an understanding and, and tried to reconcile that little conflict there by staying curious um, and by trying to get, I guess, just, I don't know how to really explain it, but I, I guess doing that built my positionality, which, you know, in academia, positionality talks about, you know, looking at yourself and the world around you and, you know, what your worldviews are, what your convictions. And I guess even in this conversation right now, it stays the same. And curiosity can build that positionality. It can, and some people may call it personal brand. I don't really like that term, but 
I guess it kind of is like that, you know, you build a note, a sense of self by staying true to, you know, the questions that you have and um, the inhibitions that you have, the doubt that you have, that that's all a part of building, I guess, where you stand in the world around you. Um, and I guess if, if I wanted someone to tell me something when I was in year 12, it would be that just stick to that, you know, don't feel like that's not real world enough because I had been told that many times by many professionals um, even people in my family <laughs> told me that that's not real world though you know you can do that in academic discussions in classrooms but can you do that in the workforce so I, I wish that someone told me that you know you can you don't have to worry about that loud noise they, they might be right but they may not know the potential that you have to actually bring that nexus together and I think the concept of real world is a bit flawed and, you know, you could say it's also very capitalistic, but um, I would say that it's just pressure from elder generations and fear from those generations to see what our generation is really capable of. So I think that, you know, we, we have to stick to our inhibitions, our doubts, our curiosity and build that positionality because that will stick with you and allow you to do things that you probably didn't even imagine and challenge the status quo, challenge things that exist in society, power imbalances and, you know, take opportunities to help dismantle those things alongside other people and build community and, yeah. I, I, I guess yeah. I, yeah, I think that message really typifies sort of what this project is about, um, you know, providing insights into you know, some of the conflicts and internal conflicts that people, uh, particularly young students, um, go through um, as they navigate different personal and professional pathways. So um, it's very refreshing to hear you be so honest and, you know, transparent um, and vulnerable, essentially, um, yeah. about those experiences. Um, and particularly from someone who graduated from Cherrybrook Tech, um, yeah. uh, I'm always um, interested and curious about, um, you know, people who are doing cool things from uh, from tech and, you know, right across Sydney and, and the state as well. Um, so, Himanshi, uh, yeah, were you going to say something? Oh, I was just going to say, like, I think tech yeah. really shaped a lot of me, like who I am. And I think for a lot of people, they have that same, you know, um relationship or ex yeah. experience with the school so I guess some people don't have the best experience at their high schools but to make the most out of it if it's possible it will probably do you a lot of good yeah on that note Hamanchi thank you for you yeah. so much for your time um, it is a Saturday <laughs> afternoon and I am conscious you have a quiz in four minutes okay. um, yeah. so we'll wrap it up um, but thank yeah. you so much for your time